Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us here this evening. I'm very excited to be moderating this group of esteemed individuals. Let me just start off by introducing myself. My name is Michael Mallon, and I'm a psychologist that is also a person who's played video games all their life and very much a a devout nerd. And uh, I'm very excited to be talking about uh, the World Health Organization's decision here recently to add gaming disorder as a diagnosis and we have some fellow mental health providers here who are going to kind of talk about some pros and cons and just some reactions to that news and i think the first bit of business would be to go around and just have everyone introduce themselves to the audience here tonight uh so who want adam do you want to take it up sure yeah i'll get i'll start it up start us off so i'm adam johns i'm one of the two executive directors of game to grow which is a not-for-profit organization that uses games of all kinds for therapeutic educational and community benefit um i'm also i was until ex- very recently this last saturday a private practice counsel- counselor um uh in the kirkland area outside of seattle uh specializing in seeing game- geeks and gamers in therapy um, and so this this uh, change for uh, this diagnosis change it, uh, hits me pretty close to home since it's been something that uh, I've been dealing with um, in my practice related uh, ideas and issues for for quite a long time now. Uh, Game to Grow is also helping to I, I have to say uh, Game to Grow is helping to host this stream uh, as I think this is like a great opportunity for for us to be able to have the discussion and and to get a lot of a lot of professionals and a lot of great views all in one place to to be able to talk about it. So uh, I'm excited for the talk. Great. Thank you. Megan, do you want to jump in next? Sure. Hi, I'm Dr. Megan Connell. I'm a psychologist out in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm also the co-founder of uh, Geeks Like Us, and we're streaming this on Twitch right now. I'm going to have this up on our YouTube channel as well. Um, do a lot of gaming. I mostly do um, tabletop games, but I also uh, do some uh, video games and play video games with my clients and do a lot of talking about this issue with parents. So this is something that really hits close to home in my practice as well. Great. Welcome. Um, Ryan? Absolutely. So um, I'm Dr. Ryan Kelly, and I actually work with Megan in Charlotte. And I'm also co-founder of Geeks Like Us with her. Related to this talk, right now I'm on the first, um, North Carolina's first addiction recovery school on the committee for that. In the past, you know, this is something very important to me, and I've done a lot of research, uh, published and otherwise, on how to use computer-mediated techniques, including video games, to improve therapy. I do a lot of local consultation uh, once or twice a month of uh, whether it be local news or schools, specifically talking about the pros and cons of screens in general, media in general, but largely as it relates to how to capitalize on video games and while at the same time needing moderation. And uh, at the moment, I see probably three to five clients a week that would meet ICD-11's criterion for gaming disorder. Early criterion, obviously, but it is it is a big part of my psychological practice. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Welcome. And uh, last, Tony? I am uh, Dr. Anthony Bean. I'm here in Fort Worth, Texas, and the executive, I'm also a psychologist, and I'm the executive director of the Telos Project, uh, which is something that I run with my wife, who's also a psychologist, I just pointed to the back so you kind of see my hands like this because she's putting the kid down right now. Um, yeah, she's like, 
Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, and I primarily see a lot of the uh, video gamers, geeks, and nerds in the practice that kind of comes through. We've got like nine clinicians in there, and we're constantly growing. And we, we do a lot of good stuff and just had the book come out, which got my copies today. Slightly disappointed in their uh, printing of the pictures. But oh. I know uh, it's, it's not good. Um, but that's life. <laughs> and and he, he's being modest. He just got his uh, beer trimmed and it's marvelous. It is. Yes. Congratulations. <laughs> Very important information. It's great. And so I'm going to do my best to, to moderate this. And again, my name is Dr. Michael Mallon. I'm a psychologist. I actually work for uh, Veterans Affairs and Primary Care Mental Health Integration, which is uh, I'm located in one of the primary care clinics at a big big VA in the Midwest and do a lot of preventative mental health care work in what's called our post-deployment clinic. So work with a lot of younger veterans. So certainly uh, gaming, video gaming is talked about quite a bit as a, as a coping strategy. And there's uh, several veterans who I've met with who would likely fall into the categories that are uh, distinguished in the new gaming disorder. In the past, uh, way back, early as 2000, I've been publishing research on online communication and using kind of distance technologies like video conferencing like we're doing right now uh, to deliver therapy services. So it's always been an interest of mine, technology and mental health. Uh, so this is a topic that's certainly near and dear to my heart. And I appreciate all of you for letting me participate in this. Um, so let's dive in. And I'm sure we have a lot of strong opinions about this uh, gaming disorder that the World Health Organization has come out with. And just maybe to start on a hopeful note and uh, keep things positive at the beginning, I wonder, what do you think are the possible benefits of this organization coming out and labeling, kind of giving this diagnosis out to uh, the world and saying, this is something you all need to be aware of? Um, who wants to jump on that first? I'll say that the first thing that comes to my mind, um, but I'm, I'm sure there are a lot I'm looking forward to hearing everybody else's, is simply, it'll be nice to have insurance coverage for this. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the times we do have a lot of overlap with Asperger's or ADHD or anxiety. So probably they already have a you know label that can get them insurance coverage. But, you know, I, there are kids that just, just gaming disorder. Um, and to have, you know, this, this, this label that, you know, again, I think we're going to be a little conflicted about, but that you know, research is going to focus on the inform assessment, improve assessment, improve intervention, and insurance companies latch on to to be able to cover it uh, is going to be a good thing. Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll chime in and say one of the things that I think is, has been really beneficial about this is uh, is this exact thing, which is that we get to have these yeah. discussions. We get to really dive into mm -hmm. uh, the consideration of this. And um, if nothing else, one of the things that it will really force a lot of therapists to do is to to start to research a little bit more, to look into it a little bit more, um, and to understand a little bit more about gaming. And I think one of the most important pieces in reaction to that is, is that we keep being able to have discussions and we be being able to make that information available to a lot of the people who are just now getting into this as a concept, getting into to how games can impact people's lives, both in negative and positive ways um, as an idea. I think one of the things I can see too is like it might change how we look at games and how we categorize games and how we understand how you play games. And, you know, 
looking at um, something like a, oh, this is an old game that I used to play pocket frogs, not being the same as like grand theft auto and how we, you know, how to classify them and look at them in different ways. I think it'll create a broader understanding of video gaming and how we interact with that media. Anthony, you have any thoughts you want to add in? Yeah. Yeah. Ton, tons and tons. Of tons. <laughs> <laughs> constant, constant thoughts. Um, the, the, the benefits is it, it does create a clinical diagnosis, whether insurance is going to cover it. I have my doubts on that because they still don't even cover certain things. Just as like a generalized like gambling disorder um, in there. And even some insurance panels won't even cover uh, autism diagnosis as primary, uh, secondary or tertiary, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have to resubmit constantly. Um, so it does, it serves a purpose, but I'm of the camp that I think it's too premature to have put this out there. I think that we still need a lot more, research because everything that uh, Posniak um, went over, he's the head of the WHO people of that uh, the task force, um, went over was very much, in my opinion, uh, biased um, research because it came a lot of out of the, the West or the East, whatever it is, Asian countries, <laughs> countries of Asian descent um, is what they kind of used a lot of the research for instead of actually going across the, the globe Plus, there's, I mean, we could go on for a long time, but I, I'm, I'm not saying that it's not there, uh, but I don't think in its current conceptualization that it's going to serve a very positive overall purpose. So kind of summarizing some of the, the thoughts that have been out there, it, it seems like one thing that could be beneficial about this classification is, you know, it might help with insurance. It might help more uh, patients getting uh, services for uh, issues or concerns that are coming up from this. I think in increasing this as a conversation piece and certainly more research, if more research can be funded on this topic, given that now it's a diagnosis and you know you can apply for grants and set up some research projects. And I just remember you know, way back in the late 90s and early 2000s, I was trying to do research on chat-based therapy and video conference therapy. And my advisors were thinking I was wasting my time. They're like, what are you talking about? That's never going to be a thing. Don't, don't bother. So I think having some, some backing, if you're a student and you want to, you're motivated and you want to do some research in this area, I, I think now you have a little bit more ammunition to, to make that happen. One of the things, just so we're all talking about the, so the people listening as well are aware of the, the World Health Organization's official definition of gaming disorder. It includes what they say, a pattern of behavior for at least 12 months in which gaming is out of control, for whatever that means. And then a pattern of behavior must show an increased priority given to gaming to the point that gaming takes precedence over other interests and daily activities. And it's a continuation or escalation of gaming despite the occurrence of negative consequences or behavior that affects one's relationships, education, or occupation. So it really borrows pretty liberally from other types of addictive kind of substance use disorder, some of the language that, that they're using there. And how do you think as, as providers, you've had, you've had patients, how, how do you think that fits for your interactions with patients who maybe are using games uh, inappropriately or, or too often? I think it fits pretty well. I mean, it is, it is a very broad, kind of all-encompassing 
description of it. I will say, look, I love video games. I play every day. I use it in therapy. I have video game consoles in my office. But, um, you know, I do see these clients who, you know, I had a kid um, a few months ago where we're having to get things in like a safe because he can't be trusted even though he wants to stop. And he wound up throwing the safe off the roof and played a switch with a broken screen that somehow survived the fall. And it's, you know, it's in a lot that's, of these. That's just resourceful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As well as <laughs> combination on Nintendo for making yeah. a Switch. That can yeah. Give him XP. <laughs> oh, yeah. Gotta have it, right? Yeah. It's, but, but I do see it as, as causing, you know, a, a significant problem. And I do see, you know, the idea that it's this highly dopaminogenic activity that is unique from others. And I've got so many kids who now, you know, with video games in particular, see boredom as a symptom as opposed to an opportunity. And it's very much, if, if I cannot have my <coughs> limited, what else am I going to do? And then I'm just met with all these other things. So I think in general, to start off with, that's, that's a fair way to describe it without targeting nuances. I think um, as I think about like this disorder, um, the, the thing that really comes to mind is, is I think about other therapists um, using this disorder and using the guidelines that are outlined there in order to provide that diagnosis. And in my mind, the, 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 I, I have a sort of a, a pretty clear idea of when gaming is getting in the way of other important activities and other important parts of, of uh, a kid's life or of a person's life in, in a way that I would, I would qualify as addiction. And I too have seen uh, kids that, that definitely fall into that area where, where the game is taking up um, just a huge portion of their life and, and uh, making it very, very difficult for them to be social, making it difficult for them to um, attend school and get, and get you know, the, the homework done that they, that they need to get done, uh, where it really, really would be considered an addiction uh, or, or at the very least disruptive. Um, and the thing that really comes to mind with this is I, I can picture ways where I can see therapists who doesn't understand games uh, who, or who doesn't understand gaming culture, providing this diagnosis without without knowing what's going on, without really understanding. And specifically, the parts of the diagnosis that are about like gaming for long periods of time without at at, at an impact to social interaction. Right. And I can picture you know somebody going, oh well, I play Minecraft with my friends every afternoon. Uh, for four hours, and and a, another therapist going, that's hugely disruptive. You're sitting in your room by yourself for four hours um, and totally glossing over the, like with my friends part of that and the, and the, the opportunity for productiveness that comes along with that. Um, and the, the kind of game that they're playing as opposed to necessarily just games in general. And I think that's, that's really where a lot of the challenge here, I, I think for, for me personally, this is a great description. It keeps it broad enough that if I really needed to provide that diagnosis, it would be, I, I totally could, but I think it also might be, a little too broad for somebody who doesn't understand it. The, what, the, the main point that you're touching upon, and this has come out of the, the researchers and the uh, other, a lot of other people in this area that are, are very pro this diagnosis, is that there are not enough clinicians who know enough about this, and that creates a huge disparity. Um, of understanding, as you said, the, the culture, the, the idea of gaming the, leads them down a, the, the path of not necessarily asking the questions that I think generally need to be asked, such as what about this game? I mean, the things that I've always noticed with the gamers that kind of come in 
have been that they they always gravitate towards specific genres. There's there's very little overlap between the, the genres and the choice of games I, that they like to play. So someone are going to like RTSs versus other ones are going to like MMOs, and they don't seem to really do a, a a big overlap on that. Versus my action gamers or who are into Fortnite and who are into uh, Minecraft and Halo at that at that point. And so I, to me, it really kind of it's a little disheartening that they went ahead and did this without really kind of getting what we would call an ethos of gamer culture involved in this and not taking a lot of the research that we, we see um, out there and sticking in my opinion, a little too much on the, the correlational data that is just not, um, not a good way to do. I mean, psychology is in a little bit of already of a replication crisis and we're going to go with lower order stats. I mean, we can't even get our dissertations approved with doing correlational work you're there's no not a committee out there that's going to approve a correlational study or dissertation yet we accept them in journal articles which is astounding <laughs> or, or or influencing decisions like this yeah i mean like did you i don't know if you guys saw the the latest nature article that got um published uh just uh, was it three four days ago um it was just like a brief little synopsis but basically they took 20 games and they basically did a graph and a checkbox of loot crate stuff of them against uh, Mark Griffith's uh, gambling criteria. And there's no methods used in this. There's literally no rhyme or reason to the games that they chose. There's do- duplicates such as like FIFA 2016, FIFA 2017, Forza Motorsport and things like that. So there's multiple days or multiple games in this one. And all they did was checkbox the thing be like, yes, it meets this criteria. Yes, it meets this. There's no stats. There's no theory. There's no understanding of it. Yet this got published in nature. And we're all like, who, who approved this? This is ridiculous. This isn't even appropriate for, for an undergrad conference. And yet someone allowed this to get put into a mainstream journal. This is ridiculous. And I think this, this discussion kind of touches on something uh, Megan was talking about earlier about you know, maybe one of the benefits of this gaming disorder to being out there and disseminated into the public is that it, it might change the way we all look at games. And I think what we're talking about right here is some of the ways games are designed and games very much, and it's something, you know, I've kind of written about in the past and just been aware of myself as a gamer, of like there's games I get sucked into for very specific reasons. Like there are these mobile games that are like I feel in a, I'm in a Skinner box where it's just, you know, you have to do a certain number of things based on a certain period of time and you level up and you get more stuff and it's just like rinse and repeat and you have to keep devoting more and more time to it. And it's on a very strict reinforcement schedule. It's very behavioral. It's like, like I know I'm being manipulated, but yet I still get pulled into that game. And I feel like I'm, aware of this enough that after about a week or two or sometimes a year with some games, (laughs) I can pull myself out of it. Like the one that I stuck with the longest was Marvel puzzle quest, which is this free to play game. It's kind of like candy crush, but as superheroes and you can upgrade them. And again, it's just sort of this like reinforcement schedule that it sort of sucks you in to it. And one of the things I think would be interesting, and Megan, I'd be interested if this was kind of something you had in mind, is if games were, because right now they're labeled like there's violence or there's language, but if we started labeling games with the type of sort of behavior they're trying to cultivate, so what kind of reinforcement for the player is there in this game with either leveling up XP 
or the whole loot crate business, which is very much like gambling in a lot of ways. I don't know, Megan, what, what are your thoughts on that? No, I agree. And actually, this is a conversation uh, that uh, Ryan and I have had a lot of where do we draw that line between gaming disorder and gambling addiction? Mm-hmm. You know, when you're looking at things like loot boxes where you're paying, um, you, you mentioned Marvel Puzzle Quest. I, I still play uh, Magic the Gathering Puzzle Quest. Okay. Uh, and that, that one has a, a thing too, though, where like you turn in gems to get cards and you don't know what cards you're going to get. And I mean, there's pay things in there where you can pay 50 bucks to get a random set of digital cards, which I know magic is famous for being super expensive as a, just a card game, but you know, getting into that and getting those small reinforcements, you know, you know, becomes like playing a slot machine. And so I've talked to parents before whose kids have spent over a thousand dollars on in-app purchases in games, you know, is that gaming disorders, <laughs> gambling, you know, is it shopping? What is, what is that exactly? And I think we need to have a better discussion around that to un- identify that piece. Michael, I think that's a really very fascinating point of the idea of, you know, we've got, you know, EK, TMA, you know, for, for gore and nudity and everything. But the idea of, it, it, I haven't put a lot of thought to it. I haven't really thought of it until you said it, but the idea of like, this game has collective qualities. This game is open world. Uh, this game's a grinding game. This game, that would be very, very interesting. I don't, I don't know what it would look like. Right. But, um, but I mean, that's certainly, certainly a point to it. And I think probably everyone on this panel right now or on this discussion has found their limit with gaming. I mean, is that if, if we got a head nod, if that's true? I mean, the idea that like, I, I know for me, it's, I, I tend to avoid lately, like, big open world grinding games like Sea Thieves or Skyrim or because I know I'm going to, it's going to, I'm going to divorce and my kids are going to call me Ryan. <laughs> you know? and, uh, so it's, uh, you know, like, it's, uh, being colorful, but the idea is uh, it'll interfere with my sleep. I've had to have my wife take my switch at 11 PM. Like I did like, don't listen to future Ryan. He's a, he's a liar. You take wild, <laughs> which I just couldn't avoid it. And you take it from him because he's, he will try to manipulate you, you know, but that it's, I think, hard for some people to know their own limits. That would be really fascinating. That's probably worth its own discussion. And I think we have, you know, the benefit, the training to, to sort of know we're being manipulated, whereas the, yeah. the general public might not know that. Sure. And like, you know, games like Candy Crush, where I think if you actually spend money on it, it responds by getting more difficult. So you have to spend more money on it. Right. Mm-hmm. And in terms of regulating games, I mean, that's a very interesting thing of, are there certain sort of behavioral reinforcement mechanics that you would say you can't do this any longer besides like violence and gore and trying to get that out of games, but more of how they're built, how they're designed and how they try to literally hook up a player in that that's kind of fascinating. I don't really think that research is out there, but that would be some interesting studies to look at or to execute. I, I, I also think that it's it's important, though, that we don't just look at it from a behaviorist uh, perspective, is that I think this is what really um, dis- does a huge disservice to our field, is that one area of research um, is held in much higher regard than in, in one paradigm of thought over others. So, like, I'm what we consider a depth psychologist, deep, not death. Um, and I have to do that clarification all the time. Don't worry. Um, and, and that's, uh, so for me, I'm very Freudian, Jungian and that type of like old psychoanalytic stuff. And it's it very much focuses on how can we incorporate everything into this more of a gestalt type uh, idea of this. 
And I think that is what is really missing in the in this research in in a lot of the area that we don't have that capability or even the the notion to think about this. What if we ask this differently? What if we talk to the the video gamer about what about this game gets you? What are you getting about this? Why are you drawn to this specific character? Why these genres? These are questions that are not being asked. These are questions that are not in our research, and these are questions that are just as important as as the reinforcement schedules to to really understand because it may be part of the the problem it may not be part of the problem it may be part of the solution we don't know and i think that's where our field's doing a major disservice i i, I think i really agree with that and and it comes to a ch- sort of a challenging point especially when it comes to diagnosis that uh i feel like we don't tend to get into those questions right we don't get into those that place of really understanding what what is it about this that is important to you um, I have a colleague that um, uh, Wilder Heath, who developed the whole system uh, called the Armor System, that's all about um, a breakdown of uh, how you understand games, or what the, what is the the meaning or takeaway that you get um, from the games that you play from a uh, like fulfillment concept. Um, and it's things like um, uh, autonomy and the ability to have reliability in games um, and a social outreach. And I think being able to understand what games you play because the kinds of games you play and the reasons you play those particular games is a huge part of what what speaks to you, what pulls you into it. Um, and maybe a, a strong indication of, of the other areas of your life that you're not getting those things, that you're not getting the opportunity to feel a sense of mastery or feel a sense of competence within within your life. And so you you get it through the games rather than through through something else. And sometimes you can get pulled too much into that. And, and that brings up one of the oh go ahead, please. Oh no, I was just gonna say no, that's that good point of like I can't kids who get frustrated with like I can't get my keep my room clean. I can't figure out the social stuff at school, but yet I understand the level tree here. I, I get this world. It feels safe. I can, you know, in Minecraft, I can make the perfect house. I can make the perfect village. I can get everybody to interact in the ways I want them to, you know, and that too has, can have an addicting property to it. You know, and that's not like you were saying, Tony, not classic behaviorism. That's more of that social kind of out there stuff that we have a, can have a harder time measuring. I, I have quite a few clients that find video gaming uh, to be not just uh, a way of socializing, but a way of safely socializing. Uh, yeah. Because being in a, a going out to, we're going to use the classic ideas of a bar or a group setting or something like that is too overwhelming. I mean, I have a 46 year old Asperger's guy who has a PhD in public health um, stuff. And yeah, he's super smart. Like his IQ is probably like in the 140 somewhere. But he, can't go out and do these things. And so he, he can't go out and socialize. And so we slowly got him into playing actually video games. I actually told him he has to play video games <laughs> online. And we started with Pogo and it actually got him into a spades group. And now he goes every week to this spades group and he's made uh, 14 friends or so, something along those lines. He hangs out with them now on a regular basis. He goes to their groups. He's being invited to get togethers with them, which he goes, he goes on walks with them. I mean, it's just, he's, he's, use the gaming as a jumping point to do it. And now he doesn't even game as much. He just relies on the spades group for that social activity. And I think that's something where we're not talking about those types of uh, success stories that are using games in those, that capacity. Uh, there's an aspect to this that is villainizing games as a result mm-hmm. of the fact that, that this is a, a forefront aspect for what games bring to the table. And that is they disrupt your life and, and ruin parts of your 
of your social outreach mm-hmm. uh, and other parts of your life. And so what everyone's been talking about the last few minutes is something that I really wanted to get into and get, get your thoughts about this. And maybe this is, you know, encouraging a, a bit of self-disclosure on everyone's part, but for yourself, I, I assume everyone, when they introduced themselves, talked about very much being a gamer, playing video games th- throughout your life and even into present day. So for you, what are the functions of playing video games? What purpose does it serve for you? Yeah, for me, so so every day I'll play for at least 30 minutes to an hour and a half, usually of games. I got two children, so I try to play ones that have, are self-limiting with time so I don't have to manage it because I'm garbage at that. And but so usually it's Rocket League a few rounds or it's uh, Fortnite a few rounds. And then every once in a while, I'll play a game like Dark Souls Remastered and destroy myself. But, you know, it's when I play it, oftentimes it's like it's like a beer in the evening. It's stress relief. I've had a long day. It lets my cortisol subside, gives me some, you know, very pleasant dopamine. um, And it's just it's it's cathartic to me. um, And it allows me to get my mind off things. And uh, there are times where it is, I've been playing games since I was four. So it's, <laughs> I've really practiced the skill and I'm proud of it. Like it's, I'm proud to get parries. I'm proud to win PVP. Like th- there is a sense of this is something I'm good at. So it makes me happy and um, socializing a little bit. And then, you know, I would just say um, I love RPG. That's one of mine is RPGs. I've, I've always loved RPGs. They tend to be my top. I love the idea of stories and um, exploration and, um, you know, building in a world. I mean, it's just, it's something, it's, it's, I feel like it's such a rare opportunity that really at the moment only video games can provide. So that would be, that'd be my, my biggies. Um, I think for me, it's, uh, it's all, all a sense of like success uh, and competency, like really clear measures of success. I've been playing a lot of, um, uh, I'm playing Hyrule Warriors right now. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> which is which is if you haven't played it is, is basically just like a it's nice. like a big big fighter hack and slash kind of game oh. where you're basically like running into whole groups of enemies and just destroying a, a gigantic group of enemies <laughs> the um, it's, it's very it's it's it has a lot of mindlessness to it i love um, it and i think one of the biggest things is is especially as a therapist you know a lot the days are days where you're not sure you're successful. There, there are days where you're you are uh, sitting down with clients and and maybe you're making progress and maybe you're not. And you, you really you, you don't have a clear understanding in a lot of days whether or not you've you've done the best you could have done. And uh, I, I think that a lot of the reasons why I play games these days as an adult is really about having a clear like you won. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> like very clear success. Hyrule Warriors tells you like each time you hit a milestone of how many bad guys you beat. And it's just sort of like, you did a thousand. And it's like a big, <laughs> big splash up screen. Um, and, and it's, it, it just makes me, it, it, it gives me like a really clear measure of where I can be successful. It gives me a really clear outcome for that. And uh, it helps me have that when in other parts of my life, I don't, I don't get to have that. And I game, I game probably, well, I have a newborn kid. So <laughs> I game, I game uh, half an hour, here or there when I have the time to do so. You know yeah. what you can try? Neglect your kids. That's what I yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> coming, coming from a psychologist, everyone. <laughs> Parenting tip 101. Yeah. <laughs> I play in the wee hours. The wee wee hours? Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> right. no, I play when yeah, it interferes a- with my sleep and well-being. That's what uh, I do. Yeah. <laughs> sleep, what's that? It's <laughs> <crap>. <laughs> 
It's yeah, a myth. I've, <laughs> I have two two young ones and two teenagers, and so a lot of the gaming I end up doing on a daily basis is like the mobile gaming, so like the Magic the Gathering. Uh, puzzle quest just because i can play that quick and get that kind of relaxing feeling really super addicted to stardew valley right now you've been crushing stardew i i'm like uh, i have three different games of it going i love that game i love the story in it um there's just something very nice about the cycle in it of watering your crops getting them to grow then selling them and getting that you know feedback of getting your firm bigger and completing some quests and stuff and like it's not overly complicated um but it it's one of the i think it definitely has that idea of uh, some scaffolding in there where as you learn and you get the better, better mastery and it just i don't know i find games super relaxing for me it's i wrote an article um for take this about my own anxiety and like one of the problems i have is my brain does not ever shut off um when i'm having conversations with people it does and when i'm gaming <laughs> it does so it that's how i use it I, I think that Megan kind of touches upon one of the, the big things of actually using video games as a mindfulness technique. Um, it can be very monotonous and very just like very driven. And, you know, you kind of lose yourself in, inside of that immersion or that immersive experience. But there's also a mindfulness uh, component to it. So I, I use a game and it's I, it was at PAX East. Um, it's, uh, it's called Beasts of Balance. And I don't know if you guys got a chance to play it, but holy cow, that game is so much fun and so ridiculously hard. Um, so the, basically, they have these little origami um, type uh, plastic uh, with the like with the RF things in there, um, and you scan it on on this pedestal, which is only like this big, and you have to stack them, and then you have to make sure you can stack all the animals up, but then you also have to keep them alive because once you become one becomes a favorite, they start losing life. Then you add on a- additional things and, and it just, it gets ridiculous and it's, it's, there's no way to win the game. And so the, the first <laughs> thing that I always tell the clients is you're going to fail and you're going to enjoy failing. And so we're going to fail all session. <laughs> but that's is a, a metaphor for life. Get yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and that's that's kind of the the idea of, of using games. I think in, in that aspect is there's tons of games out there. I I still to this day don't understand why some people make games specifically for mental health issues um, because I think that every game's mechanics can be used and extrapolated and used very well in those those areas. And I. I just don't see the point of making a game specifically aimed at depression when World of Warcraft, you can use the storyline for that. Or Skyrim, you can talk about the depression of the poor in the in the game. I mean, the mechanics are there. It's just about pulling them out and being knowledgeable about the game. Well, that's, uh, that, that's an interesting point. I think I, I agree and uh, disagree with that. I think um, you're absolutely right. I think every game has a therapeutic potential to it. I do, and this is coming from a bias. I've helped create you know, games or social skills specifically for them. And the benefit that I see of it is, you know, um, if, well, I take uh, Habitica, right? There's the app uh, uh, where you use the large for kids. I actually use it for myself, but you can set habits and to-dos. You get to pick your 8-bit character. You can work for gold. You can buy stuff to customize it. Parents can put in additional things like, you know, 10 gold is 30 minutes screen time, uh, whatever. You join parties where you're working on real-life goals and measuring. It's a phenomenal app. And I got a lot of schools where it's a number of kids in guilds trying to fight based on on this growth. And that's something that you you cannot find that level of kind of behavior management um, and structure in another game. You can find parts of it, 
Mm-hmm. Right. And then also I love your, your comment on mindfulness. It can, it can be such a good tool, but I mean, I think as we sort of talk about, we hear mindfulness used fairly loosely and it ultimately is a proactive method of, I'm going to take a moment to be mindful. And I, what I, what I hesitate with, and again, I, I want to use games for therapy, but um, when, if you had a game where the structure is don't just play mindlessly to avoid problems in your life, here are some actually things that we're going to incorporate where we're going to make sure you actually are mindful. Right. Mm-hmm. I do see benefits there, but I, but I absolutely agree that every game that exists, you can find great therapeutic uses for, for yeah, sure. Absolutely. I've used the, um, uh, Celeste. If you guys have played Celeste, uh, no. uh spectacular, uh, uh, game that's available on switch and steam, I think right now. Um, and it's mostly like a, a platformy, uh, sort of 2d platform, uh, side, side view platform game. But what it's really spectacular for is that the main character is dealing with a lot of mental health issues throughout the whole that's where i heard it um and uh one of the things that it does is that there's a part of the game where it makes you breathe along with a feather that's going up and down on the screen so Uh, and and, uh when you do it you you like hold buttons as you breathe like in and out um you'll kind of hold the button down so you can you can game it you don't have to breathe with it Uh, it's not detecting your breathing or anything Uh, but but as a concept for i've used it both as a metaphor for clients working through uh depression and anxiety because i think it makes a good parallel for both um uh and and then use the the skill building as a as a part of it that's already built into the game and so i do think that that there's there's a space on both ends and i i think that we we haven't we haven't tapped into the design of a game that maintains being a game and fun as, and, and engaging as much as it is beneficial or helpful for you. Um, And I think we're, we're, we're not there yet. We're, we're like scratching the surface of that uh, as, as game designers and, and as therapists and psychologists uh, of getting into that area of saying like, what's, what's really important here. What's really important about this game and how, how could I, if I wanted to make a game that, that did target anxiety or did target depression, yeah. how could I do that while still ma- making it a, a, a super engaging process? So not losing any of that, any of the, well, the part that makes a game. I, I think you hit it, man. I think that's mm-hmm. a fantastic point that I feel combines kind of Tony and Mai's perspective. Because even the ones I'm talking about, I have to admit, they are... Kind of, they're fun, but they are. They're. You can tell it's not like I wouldn't choose. You know, their therapy, right? It's like, yeah. yeah. Well, I think though, like to your point, Adam. Though, if you've ever played, um, I think it's that gaming company's uh, Journey and uh, Flowers. Yeah. Um, those are. They built that game around the concept of not scaffolding. Um, I can't cognitive flow. Hmm. Right, and so like, you do one thing, and then it kind of hints at you to do another thing. There's no talking there's no instructions there's no tutorial level you just start playing and it is incredibly mindful and incredibly relaxing and there is a lot of puzzles and challenges in it but it it's done in such a way and um zelda breath of the wild did this really well as well where you're shown one thing and then you're given a challenge where you have to use that one thing in a new way and it's so therapeutic and just it, it feels very rewarding and fun and they also did a good job with those games of just making them beautiful my Nintendo actually point. does that a lot. Uh, that that, that yeah. kind of uh, that kind of uh, game instruction style, um, mm-hmm. stolen from if I, if I remember right, uh, Kisho Tenketsu, which is a, a, a specific kind of plot style in uh, Japanese culture. 
where they, well, I won't get too deep into it, but, but effectively it's a new way to, to, to demonstrate that where you, where you don't necessarily say here, here's the tool. Now go use the tool. You sort of say, here's the tool. Now be creative about your next way that you're going to use it. And we're going to leave it, leave it a little bit more open-ended uh, for you to figure that out. So we're, we're talking about like the purpose of games and why we play games. And I'm, I'm with you with a lot of the reasons that you offered this idea of games are a form of entertainment. So it's stress relief. It's something we do for enjoyment. There's definitely this part of mastery. I know. And again, yeah, being a therapist that our work's not tangible and I have friends who are carpenters and like they do tangible things where they can, you know, at the end of a week, they can point to a job and be like, yep, I did that. That's done. And there's a different level of closure with those professions. So I think one of the things that I've recently, I mean, recently being like the last 15 to 20 years, uh, it's <laughs> games give you this kind of tangible reward structure. But there's, if I know if I play this game, I'm going to reach an outcome and that's, that's satisfying and it's something that's enjoyable. And certainly the plot, the story, the art and other things um, interact with that. But it's interesting that as you're all talking about, here are the reasons I play games, here are the functions, here's why I'm playing a game, that it doesn't really line up with anything from the gaming disorder distinction. So I wonder, as professionals, where, where do you start to draw lines or what are some of the warning signs of somebody using a game for entertainment, for stress relief, uh, for some of these more positive outcomes versus it's skewing into something that's becoming more problematic? How, how do you make that distinction for yourself and also for um, patients that you're working with? I, in my, I've been doing this down here in Texas for about five years now or so. Um, and out of everybody that I've seen over these past five years, I have met one person who would possibly fit into that category of the, of the who's idea of it. However, he has an extreme case of Asperger's, um, but it's not always the the, the high functioning where cognitively um, you get a lot of uh, ideas and, and you know your mind just goes like mile a minute type stuff. Um, it's it kind of comes to the point where he, he gets solely focused on one thing and that's it. But so the question becomes: Is it an actual gaming disorder, or is it his diagnosis of Asperger's, and he's just hyper focusing on a different task? And I think that's for for me is where I have in all that, all of the practice and everything. He's the only one that comes closest, but I still question: Is it the is it his Asperger's diagnosis, or does it actually fit into this other category? And then everyone else that I I see. I, I've seen more depression and anxiety and gaming as a coping mechanism for that to make them feel wanted, to make them feel powerful. We've talked about the accomplishments that you can get through playing gaming. And I think that's really a, a point that's not being talked about. And again, the broad and generalization of this uh, who diagnostic category, I think is, is going to cause a lot more problems and a lot more of a problematic diagnoses than what is uh, could be more positive for the gamer culture. I, th I think Tony makes some good points. I mean, I think e even outside of gaming disorder, you know, in the addiction field, it's this split between kind of um, traditionalists who say uh, addiction is a neurochemical addiction and that's what it has to be. And it actually, they used to say you used to have to be devoid of anxiety or depression. And the DSM-4, that even have asterisks. You're bipolar, but if you're abusing substances, you're not bipolar, you're <laughs> vice versa. If you're, if, you're, if you're abusing substances, you're not bipolar, right? And, and they are so often hand in hand. 
And I think personally, I take the approach of, I, I would say kind of similar to Tony's, the amount of people I've met who have an addiction, um, gaming or otherwise, that don't also have anxiety or depression or ADHD or Asperger's, I'd say maybe one or two, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. College students who just got into it. And, you know, so the way I look at it and something I'm currently working on is trying to create a standardized assessment to try to, you know, to try to figure this out. I mean, some, some example items might be, you know, if, if you ask your child, you know, or, or, you know, if the person has to stop playing, do they have a stress response, you know, to it versus frustration? Okay. But like, you know, a stress response or, um, do they have conduct problems related to gaming? Will they lie, steal, or, you know, um, lie, cheat, or steal to get the game? And it's and it's almost exclusively isolated to gaming. Or, you know, uh, that there are questions we could ask where, or even if it's like anxiety and it's the only coping skill they have is gaming. And if I remove gaming, then they're like suicidal and it's, I've got no other coping skill, right? Is it the gaming itself with the dopamine and the research brain? Maybe, but in the very least, it's, I would see it as like, but we do have to, you know, how do we intervene on this problem? But I, you know, Tony, I think it's a, it's a fantastic point trying to figure out, you know, trying to, try to decipher. And, and like one of the big things is, is I think that's where it comes into talking about boundaries. It's, it's like back onto, onto your point is it's very, very important that when we work with parents, it's, and, and I don't know if you guys have had this experience up and across the, the country as well. It's most parents, one, never start off with appropriate boundaries Two, have a lot of difficulties reinforcing them because once it's gone down a path, the kid doesn't want to go back. It's hard to rein in someone in. Yeah, sure. And, sure. and then once it's once it hits a certain point and we start to reinstill boundaries, it's a very slow progression, but you can point things out that have happened. And I think that's um, a, a major issue that's not, we're not really seeing. A, a very strong uh, boundary formation in in the households. I mean, I, I think I think that is that is a, a huge part of it, and I definitely think it's a, it's a, a so often a, a family systemic idea. Um, and my background's all marriage and family therapy, so obviously I come from the same kind of systemic um, concept for that. Uh, but uh, I'll I'll also say to to throw that out that that there's there is a tipping point, and I think we all use the same the same thing to decide whether or not. Uh, the gaming that somebody do, is doing is starting to become problematic or starting to, to become uh, something that, that at least needs to be addressed in some way, needs to be uh, dealt with. And it might be the result. It might be a, a part of anxiety or depression or or underlying systemic ideas within the family. But there is a point where we go, oh, now I'm starting to get some alarm bells or I'm starting to get mm-hmm. some some concepts for where this is becoming disruptive in their life. And some of that is you know, they chose, they didn't do their homework because they were playing a game or they woke up in the middle of the night and, and uh, stole the power cables back from their parents. Um, uh, oh, yeah. st- stuff like that. Resourceful but. again. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, right. I love the positive reframe. <laughs> uh, I've got my own thoughts on it, but I wonder what y'all's are. I mean, the way I see it, and I like that Tony kind of commented on the boundary formation of it, is to me, it does seem like it has its own unique da- demands for boundary formation. I mean, it's, you don't, we, we don't have to do this so much with like sports or, you know, the, or like writing or art or music, like these other things. But I would say in my own opinion, and which is why I do so many presentations on it is I think every kid needs to have early boundaries when it comes to screens in general, mm-hmm. but 
especially other kids who are even more at risk of ADHD Asperger's when it comes to gaming. So I wonder what your guys' thoughts are on, do you agree that it has its own unique need for boundary formation? And then what are your, what are your thoughts on that if you, if you agree with it? So it doesn't need boundaries beyond like just screen time. Traditional. Th- well, mm, yeah, I'll say that, but, but mainly we'll just say beyond other activities and hobbies that kids are naturally going to develop through their life. That parents would otherwise just kind of be like, go ahead and have fun. And it's not going to cause a problem. Right. Well, I'll jump in. I think one of the things that I, I think is really, you know, you're talking about the unique demands of, of gaming is just how available it is. And you talked about sports, these hobbies that for the most part, you need to be outside, you need to be with other people. It's more of a, a group type of interaction or even other forms of entertainment where it's something that's more passive. If you're watching a movie, it's not like there's a movie watching disorder that the World Health Organization is going to come out with. Or, you know, maybe they should with like people who've been Netflix shows all the time, nonstop. Like cinephile. <laughs> yeah. Cinephile. Um, but with gaming, it's very interactive. Like all the reasons we talked about before, like 10, 15 minutes ago, like you're getting something out of it. You're participating. There's maybe a social component now. And most games have this kind of always online type of uh, interaction that can be happening where you're very much participating. You're learning the game, you're gaining mastery. And with mobile games now, they're just always there. They're kind of always on. You could always be playing at any given time. And I, I think that tends to lead to maybe there is something about games because I mean, the really good ones are sort of designed to get you to play more often and you don't want to put the game down almost like a good book but a book the book ends at some point yeah. and a, a, a television show ends a movie ends or like these other hobbies that people can get into are less yeah less it's less interactive but there's i don't know what are, what are your thoughts about about that and megan you were about to jump in oh no no i'll let tony do it okay i i was gonna say but you just kind of like jumped on the, on a point really, really important um, that yes, a book ends, but what about the Harry Potter series? It continues on after that book ends. What about video games in general? There are continuous adaptions. Zelda's had over 20 different video games. Why do people keep on playing the same game over and over and over again? If we know how it's going to end, we know we're going to win at some mm-hmm. point. The, the question becomes is what is that experience we're getting from playing this game? And since everything constantly changes sports, the game rules stay the same. They don't really change over that time. Yes, it becomes monotonous at some point. Video games change. So the same Call of Duty from 1 is different from uh, Call of Duty 3. It changes. The mechanics are still there, but the storyline is different. But there's a different aspect to it, which then draws us into what about this this part of the game? Why am I drawn to I mean, I think I think there's an interesting piece to this that that has more to do with the individual engagement and interest because, like you said, like people people watch football every Sunday, um, like and make a whole thing of it and 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 support their team and dress up in colors and and like there are families that that like their Sunday is dedicated to watching football, um, like that's not that unusual and and it really is not. Part of that is is it's limited. I can't do it all the time. I can't. I have to be there when there's a when there's a game on or something like that. But there's a lot of football that gets played. Um, and yeah. You really are invested. You can you can do that a whole lot before you before you really start hitting the limit of of being able to uh, watch a game. I think a part of it is is divide. 
a, a uh, that partly the games are, can be designed in such a way that they're really only interesting for the person who's playing it or people who are, are really already very interested in the game. And part of it is that we still have, it's so new. Uh, we still have a, a, a lot of culture that's dedicated to um, uh, here, you know, uh, I'm going to play the game. My parents don't understand what it is um, or, or my teachers or my, or my, the other people in my life. Um, and I think that's, a big part to, to what makes that more isolating um, and less of a community event. I can be super uh, into Harry Potter and it's got a similar isolating quality to, to it. If my parents are like, Oh, you're reading that book or whatever. Mike, can I ask another question? I don't want to like drive, you know, <laughs> Oh, please jump in. Yeah. This is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Is it kind of personally uh, in my profession is, we all love games here. We all are huge nerds uh, and we value it and we all use it in our therapy. And how do we go about this discussion while keeping our own bias in check? We're, we're very concerned about the bias of people who stigmatize it as we should be. Mm-hmm. But I've, you know, I also will come across articles and things where they're clearly disregarding some of the potential negatives, right? And I find myself doing that, by the way, too. I'll just hear myself framing something in a way where it's very much, I'm, I'm, I obviously think it's positive. So how do we as professionals go about that where we try to make sure our biases aren't interfering with, with the discussion? Yeah, I think we, question. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the biggest things is that objective look when we were talking before about like, when do you consider it cro- crossing the line into a, a disorder? I was thinking of one of my clients who has a lot of anxiety is also asked me, but was escaping into video games. But as soon as that was taken away, they escaped into something else, you know, so it was, they needed to learn a skill set, and video games was just one of the things it wasn't the, you know, like the video games weren't the problem. It was the lack of skill set that was driving that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I think we have to understand like with keeping our biases out of looking at it and going, is this unhealthy? If I was doing the, you know, if, would this be a negative impact in my life? Like how, what really does happen if they stop playing? Like if they go camping for a weekend and can't play, can they come back and go, that was fun. Yes. I missed my games, but I still was okay. You know, I don't know. I think. Oh, I hear what you're saying. I want maybe yeah. a quick follow question. If, Cause this is one that I heard myself saying the other day, if we've got sort of the American association of pediatrics saying, you know, no more than two two hours or more screen time after school, and that for every thirty minutes we see a 0.15 decrease in GPA. And this is screens, not just video games. But if we have those kind of guidelines, we got a lot of research to back it. But I personally think it's fine for a kid on Saturday during the summer to binge, you know, a playing Dark Souls three with three of his friends, uh, you know, with moderation, you know, splitting it up and everything. I'm I have an objective guideline, right? But then I have a bias of it. It seems it seems fine. I know what how much I've gotten out of it. I know how much my friends have gotten out of it. Like uh, it, with your point, because I think you're right. Like trying to look for the objective. Would that be an example of me making a mistake because I'm I'm sort of being like I don't see it as a problem, even though there's research to say it it is. Well, I remember with research too, though. Like they're saying two hours on average, right? It's it's on average, but we again with research, we do have to go by what we can. We can't right, right. But I, I would say like if they're not playing like Monday through Thursday, then yeah, they can play a little bit longer on the weekends. 
you know, I don't know, but that's me. (laughs) Right. That's the bias. I, you know, honestly, I, I don't think, I don't think I'm capable of removing my bias on this. I don't, you, you, yeah. you know, I, I, games have been a hugely influential part of my life and they, and they've provided a lot of opportunity for a lot of really wonderful and, and important things. And I have had to learn how to, how to regulate and how to, how to do those things. Um, but ultimately um, it, it is, it's hard. It's hard to keep in mind that I'm go- I'm always going to have a bias. If somebody ever comes up to me and they go, "Ah, oh, games are terrible for you," I'm I'm not going to be able to be like, "Ah, hmm, well, let's think about this a little bit." Like I'm I'm always going to say, "Nah, they're not." Like there there's a lot of opportunity here for games to be really good for you, and that's it's 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 tough for me to to ever have a non a non biased view on that. And I, I think it's it's maybe healthier to recognize that I always have a bias. Um, mm-hmm. than it is necessarily to try to to work hard to to always separate out the bias in in therapy. I can recognize games are not for everyone. Um, games are not for for all people to to use in a positive way, and that there are opportunities where it's being used poorly. And I think that's where I I find my middle ground, uh, rather than necessarily saying that. I'm always going to have a, a, a bias towards games. I can give recognition to the idea that I know that it can be used in a poor way. Yeah. And, you know, maybe this is a good way to transition into maybe the final, final topic that I wanted to talk, because I think some of us has to have to head out soon, is, you know, just kind of putting my own two cents in there. I, I think as, as mental health professionals, we work with such a variety of, of patients that we don't always have the same values. And whether that's about gaming or politics or religion or sexual values or any, like all these other things, we interact with patients that have differences from us. And I think ideally we have the skills to be able to acknowledge, here's what I'm bringing into the room. Here's what this other person's bringing into the room. And how can we work with that and just sort of acknowledge here's what's different and I think, you know, gaming is another one of those things where if somebody came in and said, like, yeah, I'm concerned about this type of behavior, what do you think? We kind of have those skills to, to be able to manage that, which is a fascinating conversation. And it would be cool to talk about that for a longer period of time. But maybe something to end with, which a few of you were just talking about, is whether you're a parent with, with a child or somebody who's monitoring your own gaming behavior, what should people be aware of, uh, regardless whether it's related to the World Health Organization's classification or just the general problematic gaming, what are some of the warning signs that somebody needs to maybe modify what they're doing or get some assistance, whether it's like they're worried about their their child or they're worried about their own use of time? Like, What would be some things you would consider to be scientifically research-based relevant for people to monitor? That's a good question. Well, what we were talking about was kind of what we call in depth psychology of reflexivity is always being aware of your own biases. Um, but the, the main thing of kind of what we um, or what I do and I, I train my uh, counselors to do as well is when it starts interfering with these other areas is how about are you stopping going to work? Are you calling in sick? Are you grades dropping? Are these things happening where other parts of your life are being pushed to the side for this and it's it's going on for a period of time. So that's where I think the diagnostic criteria gets part of it right. But I think that going into uh, there are three areas like the impaired control, increased priority giving and increasing gaming despite negative consequences. 
that isn't flushed out enough to, to I, I say, as deify, I'm, I'm going to butcher this word, of, of actually making it kind of like a an actual diagnosis. I think it needs still a lot more research to flush out these characteristics because these are things where I sometimes have parents, we've, we've talked about this, and I think, uh, Ryan, you talked to, about this with that person, um, like gaming group online them coming and and playing together that's now a social interaction them playing for eight hours a day is it one person playing or is it all four of them playing different things dark souls is freaking hard man and it's supposed to be hard you're gonna have to put some hours into that game to beat that game oh yeah i love it that's that's the point of some of the games yeah but that's also the the aspect that those are those questions that aren't flushed out enough i think for this gaming disorder to to really be appropriate at this point in time. Not to say that it is not, but I just in its current conceptualization, I think it's actually going to cause a lot more difficulties. Um, and most parents don't really kind of have an idea of what's going on. They come to us. Yeah. Tony, I, yeah, I agree with that strongly. And, and maybe you and I can have a, you know, outside of this discussion on that standardized scale that I think would be really nice. Mm-hmm. To, but, um, if I were to provide just a very basic, fairly broad um, bit of guidance, it would be kind of view it or, or kind of think of it like an addiction. Like Tony was saying, is it like, is it interfering with these domains of their life, social domain, family domain, school domain, psychological domain? Like, is it interfering? Does it seem to be something that they rely on too much to cope with the world? And then the other part I would put to it is that would be unlike some of my other kind of you know, uh, drug addicts and so on is if you see it as a problem, um, you know, approach it first with a discussion. Um, don't, we don't need to hop straight toward pathologizing it. Uh, it there's a place for that, sure. Yeah. Um, start with a discussion. Um, I, I think this is not as hard as, um, well, we don't have to treat it as rigidly and aggressively as other things that might have addictive qualities. So that'd be the one little clause I'd put on it, you know, as like a typical addiction. No, and I, I, I agree with what Tony said. I think it's perfect. You know, I, I would have said, like, if they're losing positive things in their life for gaming, that's when it's a problem. I, I think those are uh, all absolutely perfect responses. I guess uh, I'll add in addition to that, because I think that's, that's a great measure for really understanding if this is a problem. I'll add this idea that um, games have the opportunity to give you a thing, and it's worthwhile for you to understand what it is that you're getting when you're playing a game. Just like how we all talked about the, the games that we play and, and why we play those games, the one thing that I would encourage you to do in, in a more self-reflective practice rather than necessarily helping someone else is to understand why do I play this game? What do I take away from this game? Yeah. And then at the end of playing, did you get, get that? Um, because that's where a lot of those alarm bells end up happening, where, where a lot of that, that space ends up happening is that you, you get to the end of gaming and you go, you know, I, I get a sense of satisfaction or completion from this game, and but every time I get to the end of gaming, I don't feel any better. I don't feel like I, I actually got any any completion. Uh, I don't feel like I'm, I'm fulfilled in any way within that. That's and that's that's a danger dangerous place to be, where you're not walking away from the game having felt any more fulfillment within that thing that the game was supposed to be giving. I like that. That's a great point. point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Trademark, trademark Ryan, 2018. I'm going to steal it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something I've been thinking about lately. <laughs> Have that recorded, right? For you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> asterisk by that. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, before we finish up, is there anything from the viewers, any questions or comments that you wanted to mention? 
Oh, uh, well, we had one good one from uh, Daniel Lawson, Lawson, I think maybe is the username, but just uh, saying that it would be cool to see uh, like a follow-up panel of this where we invite some people who are more on the anti-gaming side as we're all oh, pro-gamers. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, <laughs> I love good debate. Okay. My wife always says I, I'm always looking for a good knife fight. So yeah. I think my problem, I don't know if well, I know I'm any sure. psychologists who would be anti gay because I'm like, I'm in my bubble. That right. Well, right. Are, uh, so th- that's a, actually, Megan, a really interesting um, thing because there are people that are very pro this diagnosis, but they are, um, and, and Adam, this is not for your MFT or anything like that, okay? Because clearly you have gamer culture and, and knowledge of that. Um, <laughs> who have the doctors or have their doctorates, but are not licensed at the doctoral level, but licensed at the master's level that are being like, Oh, I'm Dr. So-and-so. And that is very misleading to the public because obviously um, I, I don't have the training of an MFT and nor would I ever pretend to be like, Oh, I know how to do a marriage and family therapist. You know, I can do all these little uh, systematic techniques, but at the, at the same, same time, um, the difference between an LPC and an MFT are massive, never mind uh, an MFT LPC versus a PsyD or PhD. The, the differences are just vast. And I really feel like there's a huge problem in uh, in our field right now with uh, people who go through the doctorate program because it's so easy with all the different institutes and stuff like that to get your doctoral degree, do your dissertation off of um, something just simple to get it done, but never go through the licensing process and call yourself doctor. I think that that misinforms the public, and I think we have uh, we're going to be having a bit of a crisis involving gaming disorder on this one. And I, I don't want to mention names, but uh, there's there's one up in Washington um, who's a, a very uh, big person and a pusher of this diagnosis. Well, and I wonder that. I mean, I'm guessing that I might be the oldest person on this panel here at 41. Is anyone older than? that but i mean our mean age does, here does is, anybody want to want to volunteer yeah. <laughs> but i'm saying i mean we're, we're yeah. i mean the average age here is pretty young excuse young for uh, professionals in this field and the folks making making these decisions kind of coming up with a classification for gaming disorder are likely quite a bit older are not people who grew up with atari nintendo sega genesis playstation and kind of can go through a library of here are the games that game systems that I've owned and played. So I, I'm sure there are younger professionals who are, are very adamant about gaming is wrong or gaming's a problem. But I, I do think there might be a little bit of just kind of a culture change and in in the field. And I just saw that in my own work with trying to use technology with counseling, of trying to do chat-based or video-based therapy. And the folks who were more advanced in age and more just kind of didn't grow up with that type of technology, they just thought, well, why would you even do that? That doesn't make any sense to me. And pathologized it in some way, rather than trying to understand and be like, oh, well, what could we use this for? How, how could it be effective? It's just more of like, well, we're just going to say it's wrong. So I, I think there might be some of that that comes from this. And the other, the other worry I have about the, the diagnosis is, how many you know parents are going to bring their kid in and their child is going to get diagnosed with gaming disorder and all these other family system, other kind of mental health, behavioral health issues are going to be ignored. Like, well, you just need to just don't do it. Like stop right. gaming. Those video games and everything will be fixed. Yeah. Like stop gaming. Everything will be fine. Meanwhile, there's depression, there's anxiety, there's adjustment, there's all other kinds of stuff that 
is not going to be looked at. I worry that this might be a catch-all of, oh, well, you just got the games out and you'll be fine. That, that's my biggest concern. Just, yeah. my, my hope is that a lot of people are having this type of conversation of, like, what does this diagnosis mean? What are the pros? What are the cons? So it's, it's been great to talk with you all here this evening. I, I really appreciate your time, and I would love to have a follow-up, certainly with folks who are more you know, adamant on the other side of being a little bit more critical of games and the problems that, that they can pose. So um, I really appreciate all your time and keep doing all the great work that you're doing out in the community. Yeah. Could I make one point? Real Please. Fast? Something that's real important that Tony really hit on very well is, is the idea of, are, are they credentialed? Um, in, in the, and not in the actual letters after the name, but do they know what they're talking about? And I think, um, the, the little modifier I'd put is I know some specialists in this area, you know, Adam D and Adam, you know, over at games to grow is incredible. And, and at this, and he doesn't have, you know, a doctorate, he doesn't have a PsyD, but he is right up with us. I mean, right here. And I also know that there's some amazing board certified PhDs who have done a ton of research in similar fields, but are old and they don't get it and they haven't lived in the culture and they're not, credible right um so i but i think tony's point is absolutely spot on it's like if you are going to look at research if you are going to read articles if you're going to look into like what have they done what is their stance you know what do they know about geek culture and and try to parse that out beyond necessarily just just whatever letters might might be but i think that is a fantastic point on the credentialing it's a, it's a mucky out there right yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely it, it is it is Cool. Well, uh, I'll just say thank you so much, everyone. This, is, this has yeah. been a great discussion, and, and hopefully we get a chance in the future to, to uh, um, set up another discussion with some people on the other side of the, on the, other side of the issue and really uh, dig into a great debate on it. Um, I'm always happy to, to help make that happen. Well, thank you, everybody who has listened, uh, who has watched uh, uh, along with us on the stream, uh, who is watching us later on on our YouTube channel. Um, yeah. <laughs> please feel free to reach out and contact any one of us um, and you can reach uh, game to grow and I'd be happy to get you in contact with it, with anybody here uh, at contact at game to grow.com. If you guys want to toss out some contact information, it's uh, you should feel free to do so. So uh, my Twitter handle, which I'm new to is Dr. R Kelly because Dr. Space boy was taken and I'm very because <laughs> I felt like that was pretty unique, but, but Dr. R Kelly and um, love to hear from you. So you guys can find me on Twitter. I'm there all the time. Uh, Megan Sidey. Um, I, I am. But, I, but this is how I got, Twitter was how I got this together. Oh, I got this nice. organized because yes. of Twitter. Thank she's you. Amazing. Yeah, huge thank you to Megan for that. <laughs> Absolutely. And you can find me. I'm on Twitter at the it DM. So T-H-E-I-D-D-M. Uh, you can find me on there. Pretty active. And uh, yeah, be happy to hear from folks if you have follow-up questions or ideas. Absolutely. And Tony, do you want to give out your info? Right. So uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Video Game Doc, um, and uh, you can reach out via email. That's it's all over the place on websites and crazy stuff like that. By all means, respond to everything. It's fun. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, everybody, um, and we'll catch you next time. Great. Right. All right. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.